chapter 11, once again today, verse 29 is where we're going to start in just a moment. Uh, yesterday we got invited to go to the lake with some friends, and uh, as we always do when we're heading to Pickwick, we drive through Selmer, we stop at McDonald's in Selmer, uh, get some breakfast on the way there. Uh, we got the breakfast, hopped back in the car, and, and stopped to pray. And, and as I've been thinking about this topic of faith, um, it dawned on me, uh, that there's probably not a more faith-filled prayer that we ever offer than when we ask God to bless our McDonald's to the nourishment of our bodies. <laughs> I think it was Tim Hawkins that used to always joke about how we need to pray, the Lord, change these molecules of sodium and cholesterol and turn them into something healthy for us. But uh, we've been looking through, if you haven't been here, we've been walking verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the topic of faith. How can we live by faith? What does that mean? Uh, we have studied the life of Abel and how it teaches us that we must come to the Lord God's way. We've studied the life of Enoch and how Enoch walked with the Lord by faith. We looked at Noah and how he radically obeyed the Lord in faith. We looked at Abram and how he trusted in God's promise in faith. We looked at Moses and how he had the faith to obey rather than to falter. Rather than to fall to fear, he had a faith of obedience. But now we move for a couple of verses, we're going to move away from an individual's faith to talking about the faith of a group of people. First point I want to make this morning, we'll look at verse 29 to learn this, and that's that faith inspires faith. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 29. It says, By faith the people, the Israelites, crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, for context, that comes in Exodus Chapter 14 is when that took place. But just to give you a heads up of what's going on in that chapter, Exodus chapter 12 um, comes the last plague before the Israelites were released from Egypt. The death angel, the Passover night came. And just after that took place and those firstborn Egyptians all died, Pharaoh and the Egyptians wanted nothing more to do with the Israelites. They sent them away just as God said that they would do. And just as God said that would happen, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians handed over their silver and gold to the Israelites as they left. Now, God led them toward the Red Sea um, by a pillar of cloud by day, we know from the Word of God, and by a pillar of fire by night. But it wasn't too long. Soon after that, um, Pharaoh's heart was once again hardened. And he believed that the Israelites were hemmed in by the wilderness. And he suddenly realized, I want my slaves back. And so he gathered his chariots, he gathered his soldiers, he sets off and begins thinking that he's going to go capture the Israelites once again. Israel, Exodus chapter 14 verse 10 tells us what took place here. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Now, what comes next, let me tell you, um, is, is, is the story of a great faith. Let me tell you, we're about to read about Israel's tremendously great faith. Second half of verse 10 says this, And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us to Egypt? Out of Egypt. Is, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, doesn't that sound like a tremendous example of faith? Doesn't that sound like heroic faith right there? It, it doesn't, does it? I mean, they believed in God so much that they believed that they were about to die that they had no hope whatsoever of escaping the Egyptians. Even after they had seen the ten, the ten, 
plagues that God sent through, even after they'd seen God's hand work in such a mighty way, here they stand, the Red Sea on one side, the Egyptian army on the other side, and their response was absolute fear, absolute terror. Began to complain to Moses, why in the world did you bring us out here? We told you we just wanted to stay slaves in Egypt. Why in the world did you do this? It was like they wanted to go back. And so why in the world, how in the world do we get from that to what the writer of Hebrews says when he says, by faith they crossed the Red Sea as on dry ground? Well, let me tell you, it happened because of a man named Moses. Exodus 14, verse 13, it says this, that Moses then said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And so once again, the key was Moses. Moses inspired the Israelites to have faith. He never doubted. He had seen God's hand. He had seen those plagues. He had watched what God had done, and he saw this situation. He had heard the word of the Lord, and he had faith that deliverance was coming. He had faith, and in verse 21 we read this, that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so as the Israelites watched the faith of Moses, they were inspired to walk forth in faith. And the Bible tells us they walked forth, just as, just as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, as on dry ground. And as soon as those Israelites crossed over, we know from the rest of Exodus 14 what took place. God released the sea and the Egyptians were buried in the midst of the Red Sea. And so one man's faith inspired an entire nation to have faith. The Israelites were crippled in fear. They knew nothing but the fear of death in that moment. But all it took was Moses standing firm, standing up and saying, Do not fear, because the Lord has told us He's going to deliver us. Just be quiet and do what God says to do. That's all it took. I think we ought never to underestimate the effect of one person's faith. One person's faith. I want you to think back. For those of you who are Christians in this room, I want you to think back to when you first came to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Who inspired you to have faith? Who was it that pointed you to Jesus Christ? I'm guessing that for most of you in this room, a, a, a face has popped into your mind, a name has come to your mind. Maybe it was a parent, a grandparent, a sibling. Maybe it was your neighbor, a Sunday school teacher. Maybe a pastor or a minister from days gone by. Every one of us came to faith in Christ because of the inspiration of someone else's faith. Because someone else pointed us to Jesus Christ, took us to the Word of God, and showed us what it meant to follow Jesus. And as you've walked with Christ over the years, I'm guessing that you've continually had people who have inspired you along the way to continue walking in the faith. You know, every week, just about every week, if someone's in the hospital at the church, um, our staff, we're going to go by day by day and visit with those people. And uh, we always go with the intent that we're going to go and we're going to try to inspire this person and pray with them and encourage them and lift them up. Um, and I'll tell you what almost always happens. 
they encourage me more than I think I ever encourage them. Always happens. I remember one particular visit that is stuck in my mind and will stick in my mind until the end of my days. I remember going to visit one of our elderly couples in the church, and this man was preparing to watch his wife slip into glory. And I remember talking with that man and, I, and just seeing the faith that he had and the faith that she had, that they knew that this was not really goodbye. It was a see you later. That they were confident that the Lord was going to take care of them. That in a moment when they should have been broken and weeping and sorrowful and, 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 and really just sad and depressed, instead they were faithful. They were courageous. And it inspired me. It, it motivated me. It showed me what, what genuine faith is. Because they believed that even though the outside did not look so pleasant, even though things were not going the way that they would have hoped in an earthly sense, that God was bringing about His will and it was for His glory and that whether or not that lady was healed on earth or healed in heaven, she was going to be healed and they had faith in that. And that inspired me. And so let me ask you this. Whose faith are you inspiring? Who are you pointing to Jesus? 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul writes this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I believe for each one of us, God places individuals in our lives who we have the responsibility of pointing toward Jesus. They need to be inspired by our faith. They need to be inspired by our obedience, by our compassion, by our love, by our care, by our trust in the Lord. They need to see our faith in action. They need to see our faith living and active so that they might be convinced to place their faith in Jesus, so that they might be convinced to follow Christ ever more closely if they're already a Christian or to come to Christ if they are not. We have a responsibility, a calling to inspire others to have faith. Now, who might that be? It might be a friend might be a co-worker, a child in your home, a grandchild, a cousin, a neighbor. It might even be a saved person. It might be a person who you might would think is more mature than you in the faith, farther down the road than you in faith, but maybe God has placed you in their life because they need a little bit of an encouragement, because they need a little bit of, of, of a lift in their faith. They need to see you walk in the faith so that they might be encouraged to walk in the faith. I read the story this past week about a missionary back in the 1930s and 40s by the name of Gladys Allward. She was a missionary in China, and back in 1938, she was forced to flee from China um, from the Yangqing district in China because of a war that had broken out. J Japan had invaded China, and, and the problem was that she not only needed to flee, but she also had to take the over 100 orphans that she cared for with her on a journey by foot across the mountains. Now you can imagine the difficulty of that. Um, that here you are with these children in your care, and you don't have cars and trains and things to get you out. You've got to get on foot across this mountain range so that you can take these children who are in your care to safety. You can imagine that that would be a very dangerous, painful journey, a difficult journey. And there's a book called The Hidden Price of Greatness, and it talks about this story, and it says, During Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yangqing, she grappled with despair as never before. And after passing a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. But there was a 13-year-old girl who was a part of her orphanage 
in the group that reminded her of her much, a much-loved story in the Bible of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. The girl said, you remember that story about when the Israelites had to cross the Red Sea? But Gladys looked at her and cried out in desperation and said, but I'm not Moses. I can't do this. And the girl looked at her and said, of course you're not. But God is still God. And that's all that matters. Here was a lady who was a missionary. And what she needed in that moment was a 13-year-old girl to encourage her to have faith. To remind her that God is still God. We have a calling on our lives to inspire others. I heard it said one time by a professor and seminary professor by the name of Howard Hendricks. Um, he, he teaches that, uh, that he believes that every single believer how to have three different types of individuals in their lives. And he compares them to three men in the New Testament, Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. And he says, for every single one of us, we need a Paul, we need a Barnabas, and we need a Timothy in our lives. And here's how he describes them. He said that Paul is an older individual who is willing to mentor you, who is willing to build into your life. It's not necessarily someone who's smarter or more gifted than you, but someone who's been down the road. Someone who's willing to share their strengths or weaknesses, everything that they've learned in the laboratory of life. Someone whose faith that you'll want to imitate. You need a Paul in your life. Someone who inspires you. He said you also need a Barnabas. He, he says that's a soul brother, a soul sister. Somebody who loves you but's not impressed by you. Somebody who, to whom you can be accountable. Someone who's willing to keep you honest, who's willing to call you out, to inspire you to walk in faith. You need a Barnabas. And then he said you need a Timothy, a younger believer in your life who you are building, who you are inspiring. He, he, he says, look at First and Second Timothy, and you can see how Paul was inspiring and mentoring Timothy. And he said, he said that he was, he was the quintessential mentor, Paul was, building into the life of his protege, affirming, encouraging, teaching, correcting, directing, and praying. And so I believe, just like Dr. Hendricks, that we need those three individuals, that every one of us needs a Paul in our lives needs a, a, a believer who is down the road a little farther than us, that we look to, that we're inspired by, that encourages us. We all need a Barnabas, someone who's right there alongside with us, who keeps us in line, who, who, who calls us out when we begin to wander into sin, who holds us accountable, who encourages us in the moment. And we all need a Timothy, someone who we are inspiring, someone who we are mentoring, someone who we are encouraging. Do you have those people in your life? I mean, Moses' faith inspired an entire generation, an entire nation of people. And so I believe it's only appropriate that we have individuals in our life who we seek to inspire to have faith in the Lord. second point I want to make this morning comes in verse 30. And it's that faith tears down strongholds. Look in Hebrews 11.30. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, you've probably picked up on this as we've studied through this chapter that the writer is working through the Bible chronologically and picking out examples of faith as he goes. Um, and, and it's really no surprise that he skips ahead 40 years. He goes from the, wild, he goes from the Red Sea crossing to the time when the Israelites left the wilderness, and crossed into the promised land. Uh, because those 40 years were not 40 years of faith. They were 40 years of doubt, 40 years of wandering, 40 years of sin, 40 years of questioning God. 
you know, not long after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, maybe six months to a year or so, you get to Numbers chapter 13, and it tells us that God instructed Moses to send 12 spies into the promised land to scout out the promised land and to come back and bring a report to the people. Those spies spent, spent 40 days traveling through the promised land, taking a report, and they came back, and in Numbers 13, verse 27, it's going to be on the screen. This is the report that they bring, they brought, excuse me. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. That's a good report right there. They came first with this report that is exactly what God said it was going to be. Here is this land of milk and honey, and it's tremendous. But then verse 28, here's the problem. However, however, they should have stopped at the end of verse 27, but they didn't. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Now, not all the spies were doubtful. There was one spy by the name of Caleb who tried to inspire them to have faith. It says in verse 30 that Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. He had faith. He believed. He trusted the Lord in that moment that God was going to give them the deliverance. But it wasn't Caleb who won the day. It was the other spies. We read in verse 31 that the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Now there's the problem. As I read that this past week, that last part of verse 31 jumped out to me. What did they say? For they are stronger than we are. They made a mistake there. You see, they quickly forgot that it wasn't their strength that delivered them from Egypt. It wasn't their strength that had won battles for them when they first crossed over the Red Sea. It wasn't their strength that had sustained them at all. It was the strength of the Lord God. They said they're, they're stronger than we are, but their strength didn't matter one bit. The only strength that mattered was the strength of God. And so they doubted, and the people refused to go in. They began to cry out and once again began to say to Moses, why can't we just go back to Egypt? This is horrible. Why, you, why did you bring us here? And in Numbers 14, we learn of God's judgment on the people. And for 40 years, they were to wander around in the desert while an entire generation of people would die off. All those doubters would die off. And so we fast forward 40 years and that generation is gone. Moses has now died. Joshua has taken the helm. God has, begin, God has given them the okay. It's time to cross into the promised land. He's prepared the people. They've crossed over the Jordan. He sends out spies toward Jericho to find out where the weaknesses are in the wall so they can get a report. Um, those spies are hidden by Rahab, which we're going to study that next week. And so you can imagine that Joshua is probably preparing for battle here. He is an experienced general. He's a man of war. And through, he's probably has going through his mind battle plans of here's what we can do. If the weakness is here, we can, you know, and all these kind of things. He's drawing up mental images of how the battle's going to go. But in, jo in the book of Joshua, chapter 5, Joshua, Joshua has an encounter with the Lord God. In chapter 5, verse 13, which we're going to read in just a second, Joshua is by the walls of the city. I imagine that he probably snuck over at the, in the night to look at the walls himself to try to get a, a sense of what he was going to ask his people to do and command the army to do. And while he was there, while he was there sur surveying the defenses, in Joshua 5.13 it says that when Joshua was by Jericho, 
He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. We find out in the verses just after that 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 man is actually the Lord God. I believe it was Jesus in the flesh, um, the pre-incarnate Christ who came there in that moment. And he gave Joshua his battle plan. And instead of some fancy military maneuvers, instead of this great scheme of how they were going to sneak attack and all this kind of stuff, he simply told them to have a parade, to line the army men up around. And for, and for six days, they were to march around one time each time, led by the Ark of the Covenant and the priests. And on that seventh day, they were going to march around seven times. And on that seventh trip, when they finished, the horns were to sound, the people were to cry out, and suddenly the walls would come crashing down. What a strange plan. I mean, what an odd scheme. I mean, it's almost like God was trying to make it absolutely clear that it wasn't their strength that was going to win the battle. It was His strength. It was almost like God was trying to set the record straight from all the way back in Numbers chapter, thir- chapter 13, verse 31, when they said, it, for they are stronger than we are. And God's trying to point out to them, it wasn't your strength that mattered in that moment 40 years ago, and it's still not your strength that matters now. All that matters is God's strength. And so Joshua does exactly what God commands him to do. He lines up the army. They parade around. And you can imagine what the reaction of Jericho probably was in those days. I mean, think about this. This is a mighty city, and I'm sure that their guards on the wall probably started poking each other. Hey, guys, look at this. They're not attacking. They're just doing a parade. What in the world are they doing? Day two, they come back and do the same thing. Hey, y'all, come up here. you got to see this thing. I'm guessing that by day five or day six, maybe a little bit of paranoia is starting to build in the, in the crowd. They're, they're doing, what in the world are they doing? Why are they doing this? And then when they start marching around seven times, I'm sure they probably started thinking, something is going on here. And then suddenly the walls came crashing down. Israel didn't even touch the wall. They didn't have to. Because all that mattered was the Lord God's strength in that moment. Now as I prayed through this passage this week and asked myself, okay God, what are you trying to teach us when you say that by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days? What is it about that? This is what I came to. Just consider this for a second. That wall that they marched around really and truly was a symbol of the sin of the people of Israel. It was a picture of their sin and their fear. Forty years prior, it was that wall that had scared them into doubting the Lord. That when those spies went out, they saw the strength of the people. They saw, it talked about the Canaanites who lived by the Jordan and and that their fortifications are great, and they saw all those things, and it was that wall that had led them to sin. Because of the fear of that wall, an entire nation wandered around a wilderness for 40 years waiting on people to die. Because of of this wall, they had fallen into sin. But God completely leveled that wall by the power of His Word. And all they had to do was follow His commands and trust God's promise. You know, as I thought and prayed through that, what I realized is that we all have Jericho walls of sin in our lives too. That when we walk through this life, there are times when sin and doubt and fear will feel insurmountable to us. That we'll look at that just like the Israelites looked at that wall of Jericho. And we will think, there is no way I can overcome this. There is no way I can defeat this sin in my life. 
there's no way I can get past this fear, this struggle that I'm dealing with. We try method after method after method, but the sin continues to have victory over us instead of us having victory over it. Or maybe we don't even want to have victory over it. Maybe we've grown so comfortable with that sin in our life that we don't want to get rid of it. We enjoy it. We, we find pleasure in it. We've become comfortable with it. And we say, well, that's just how I am. I can just live with it. Well, we can't live with sin in our lives. As long as we have Jericho walls in our lives, we will not experience the blessing that God wants to shower upon us when we allow sin to remain and to live in our life. There was a man years ago by the name of Thomas Watson who was a pastor who wrote on why we cannot tolerate sin. And I loved what he wrote here. He said, one treasured sin hands Satan just as much power over you as a hundred. He said, just as a fowler can hold a bird by one wing, Satan can hold you by just one sin. Just as a single sin left in your life is just as dangerous as a single rattlesnake left in your bed. He said, one sin makes way for more. Just as a thief who sneaks in a home can open the front door to allow others to enter behind him, one sin prepares the way for others to follow. David allowed adultery to sneak in and it opened the door for murder. One sin spoils all good deeds and duties. A single drop of poison pollutes a whole glass of water. A single sin treated with ambivalence destroys the benefit of Christian fellowship, Lord's Supper, worship, prayer. He said, one coddled sin will steal your assurance. A single sin will be like a worm that tunnels into the core of an apple, ruining the whole thing. Like a pirate steals treasure, sin steals comfort and peace and assurance. One jarring note can spoil a musician's song, and one unconfessed sin can spoil a Christian's conscience. So he writes, Christian, do not be ambivalent with your sin. Do not be complacent with sin in general. And be doubly sure that you are not ignoring a single treasured pet sin. There is great danger in any and every sin. There is great joy and freedom in every measure of holiness. Do you want that kind of freedom? Do you want that kind of joy? Well, our God, I believe, can remove strongholds of sin and fear from our lives if we will walk by faith. The Israelites that day had to learn to walk by faith. Those military men had to learn to not pull out their swords, but to simply march in silence and trust that God was going to do it. And we must learn to walk by faith when it comes to the battle of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You know, sometimes I'm afraid that in the church we put too much emphasis when it comes to fighting sin on our own abilities. We say, okay, if you want to beat sin, you got to do this thing. you got to install this filter on your phone. you got to set up this particular accountability. You've got to change this routine. And it's all about what I need to do, I need to do, I need to do, I need to do. Now let me be clear. Do we need to physically fight sin? Absolutely. Do we need to take precautions to avoid temptation? Absolutely. But even so, don't ever forget this. We don't defeat sin by works. We defeat sin by faith. It is faith that produces victory in our lives. We don't defeat sin by our own willpower. We defeat sin by looking even more intently to the person of Jesus Christ and putting our faith more and more every single day that God is going to break the hold of sin in our lives. It's not us that are going to win this battle. It's Jesus that's going to win it. And just as those Israelites had to learn to trust the Lord, so we must trust the Lord. Do you have a stronghold of sin in your life? 
It may seem small. You may think it's nothing. But like Thomas Watson said, even one small sin can set you up for failure. If you have a stronghold of sin that comes in, that it's in your life that needs to come down, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to trust that Jesus Christ paid the price for that sin and that you have already been forgiven of that sin. You need to trust that your old self is crucified. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You need to trust that that old self is gone. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a child of God who has been set free from the bonds of sin. You need to trust what James 1.15 tells us when it tells us that, the way, that, that sin is the pathway to death. That it is not the path to pleasure, but it is the pathway to death and to pain and to suffering. And you need to learn and trust that God's word is true in saying that though it may look good, it, it, it has a bite in the end. You need to trust that God's word can transform your heart and can help you to not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind as we read in Romans 12. You need to trust that God can give you more pleasure from obedience than you'll ever receive from that momentary pleasure of sin. And like, Rome, like what Moses, we learned last week and, and when we talked about Moses, of how he did not look to the fleeting pleasures of sin, but he looked to the reward of an eternity with the Lord. And we need to trust that God will be faithful to finish the good work in you that he started, like we read in Philippians 1.6. Are you faithful? Are you faithfully walking with the Lord, fighting against sin in your life? This time we're going to have a time of invitation. I want to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and for just a moment, I'd like for us to consider our faith walk right now. Is there some sin that has set up a stronghold, that has become a Jericho wall in your life? It took the Israelites 40 years to overcome that sin. 40 years of suffering. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 40 years. I hope it's not 40 years for you fighting against the same sin. I hope that today you will place your faith and trust in the Lord that God can set you free from whatever that is. That God can give you freedom, can remind you that you've already been set free from that sin. He's already broken the chains of slavery from you. But through faith and trust, you can walk victoriously with Him today. Believer, is there a confession that needs to take place today? Is there an act of repentance that needs to take place? Do you need to come to the Lord broken over your sin? If so, confess that. Turn that over to God. Put your trust in Him. Ask God to remove that desire from your heart. Every day, pray. Asking the Lord, continue to remove that desire from my heart, God. Make me desire you more and more and may that desire go away. Trust in the Lord. Father God, I pray right now for us as believers in this room that we would walk in faith, that we would walk in holiness. That we would not wind up like the Israelites who stumbled in sin and paid so dearly but if we would simply trust you follow your word 
believe in the truth of your commands and trust you and walk in them that you would give us victory. Father, if there's someone in this room who needs to confess some sin in their life, who needs to come to the altar and spend some time praying today, I pray that they would have the freedom to do so. God, if there's someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and today they've come to realize that, and God, I pray that they would come to understand that Jesus Christ is the only way that they can have eternal life and that he offers to them the free gift of eternal life if they will admit the fact that they are a sinner and that that sin has separated them from you. If they would believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died on the cross, a a sinless man died on the cross, a sinner's death, to pay the price for their sin and that you've brought him forth from the grave victoriously, proving that he was the Son of God and that today he sits at your right hand waiting for the moment which you tell him it's time to return. I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you. They would walk this aisle today at this time of invitation so that we could talk more about how they can know that they're saved. God, if there's any individual who needs to make a decision for church membership or rededication, I pray that they would have the freedom to do so in this moment. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?